Good morning. This will go a lot better if I start on the right page. So, Well, as you just heard, my name is Bill Thornton. And it was a little confusing this morning because normally I walk to F Street Neighborhood Church on Sunday morning. And so I really felt the urge coming down uh, F Street to keep on going to 13th instead of turning on A and making my way here. But I found myself here and I'm glad to be here. I'm the teaching pastor at the F Street Neighborhood Church. I work there with Jeff Hirspink, who is our lead pastor, and uh, with the other elders of the congregation. We bring you greetings in the name of Jesus. I'm married to Marcia. We've been married for nearly 44 years, and I'm honored to have her here at this early service. We'll see how it goes, and if she decides to leave, you'll probably be glad that you left too after the sermon. I don't know. Anyway, we met in my home state of Kansas while we were students in college, and we fell in love. And uh, during the past over 40 years, we've uh, pastored churches in Kansas, Iowa, and Nebraska, including 30 years here in Lincoln at Capital City Christian Church. I mention all that only to set up what I'm about to tell you, that it was during our ministry at Capital City and here in Lincoln that I became first acquainted with a person named Stu Kearns, who I'm assuming a few of you might know, the longtime pastor of Zion Church, who over the years, the last almost 40 years, has become one of my closest and dearest friends in life. During this time, I also came to know your former pastor, a man I also consider a good friend, Mike Shue. Uh, And it was during his ministry that we visited Grace Chapel for the very first time. Uh, Of course, that was uh, at your 40th and Sheridan location. Marcia and I, more pertinent, more contemporary, Marcia and I have known your current lead pastor, Ben Lowe's, for a very long time. How long, you may ask? Well, we knew Ben when he was a high school kid at Lincoln Northeast. And some of you may be thinking, oh, wow, I bet you have some good stories to tell about Ben when he was a young man. And as I was thinking about that, I'm pretty sure most of the things that he would have been guilty of back then, you know, the statute of limitations has run its course. So (laughs) not much to say there. More recently, I've enjoyed getting acquainted with other folks here at Grace Chapel on the staff like Isaac and Crystal, and Victor. We have monthly prayer meetings. I don't know if you're aware of that uh, for our neighborhood, and I'm privileged to be able to join together with these brothers and sisters in prayer for our neighborhood. And I want you to know that Marcia and I consider it a great privilege to be your co-laborers in Jesus in this part of the city. I want to thank you already for welcoming us and making us feel at home this morning. Last week, Victor taught from the first 15 verses of Acts chapter 16 that receives our attention today. There we're able to see the gospel make its way into Europe as we witnessed the first Christian conversion in a place called Philippi, a Roman colony. It was there a businesswoman by the name of Lydia, 
makes her confession of faith and becomes a part of the Lord's family that is established there in the city of Philippi. Lydia, a seller of purple, the Bible calls her. She was a woman who had her stuff together, we would say. And um, I think about my wife's lifelong love of the color purple, and I have a feeling that had we lived in the first century in Philippi, we, certainly my wife, would have been well acquainted with her. She was a hardworking religious person. In fact, Lydia, when I read her story, and as I was listening to Victor preach his message last Sunday, I found myself resonating with her experience. She sounded, her experience in the Lord sounded a lot like my own. Perhaps you felt the same way as you were listening to Victor preach. I love how Luke describes her experience of conversion. The Lord opened her heart. And I suspect that many of us could describe our relationship with Jesus in much the same way. Especially those of us who had the good fortune to grow up in the church. But now, today, in the remaining verses of chapter 16, we're going to meet people who are vastly different than Lydia, whose circumstances in life are anything but put together. In fact, when I think about the people we're going to meet today in our scripture lesson, I actually think these folks that we're going to talk about today, if we were to walk around our the neighborhood that surrounds our buildings that are located in this part of the city, we are much more likely to encounter people who are like the ones we are going to talk about today than like Lydia, who we talked about last week. In fact, I think it could be said like Dorothy Gale long ago in The Wizard of Oz to her dog Toto, we aren't in Kansas anymore. So this morning, we're going to read together from God's Word, Acts chapter 16, beginning with verse 16. If you have it in your Bible, I don't know if it's going to be up on the screen or not. I'm a, I'm a visitor, so, yep, it is. All right. Very good. Very good. I'll try not to do that too frequently. That's, I know, a little distracting and maybe even annoying, so I'll try not to do that anymore. Luke, who was a travel companion of Paul... Uh, We know that because he uses that first person plural pronoun, we, when narrating the story. And this is what Luke writes beginning in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, that should ring a bell for all of us, by the way, because that's where they met Lydia, was at the, the place of prayer. And I don't know if perhaps they were thinking... They would meet other people like Lydia there, perhaps. What Luke tells us, though, is that we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. 
Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, this is not like a, you know, within 60 minutes. This is Luke's way of saying it came out instantly. It came out at once in response to the apostolic command in the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. It's important that we take note of the identification that they place upon these men. You see, at this particular time in the Roman Empire, Jews and Christians were essentially considered one and the same by the Romans. Later it would be different, but at this time it was the one and the same. And in the case of Philippi, because they met outside of the city by the river in a place of prayer, this was a religious minority. They were not a large enough group even to have a synagogue. And not only that, an ethnic minority in a cosmopolitan place like Philippi. These men are Jews. They are other. They are different. They are outsiders. And more than that, he goes on to say, they are disturbing our city. And if there was anything that the Romans did not care for, it was anyone disturbing the peace. Verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. 
And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And police, and the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, it's my task today to preach that story to you. I'll just be up front. I don't have time to preach the whole story to you. What a great story. I wanted to be sure we heard the story, read the story together. What a powerful narrative. But you know, one of the challenges of studying this or any other narrative passage of Scripture is trying to ascertain... I mean, this is an interpretive question, admittedly, is when we read stories like this, how much is this just like describing what happened so that we get an idea of what took place? As as opposed to, where is God giving us timeless principles for how we ought to live our lives like the disciples of old did 2,000 years ago? So what I want to do is attempt to draw out some timeless principles principles. I want to focus our attention on three people in the text who I think each one has something to teach us about our lives as followers of Jesus and what it means to be ministers of the gospel, especially in our part of the city. The first person we encounter is a slave girl who follows Paul around, Paul and the apostolic Band. I mean, I'm not talking like a rock band. I'm talking like a band of disciples who were on mission together. A team, a ministry team. And this slave girl, what she says is, is like uh, theologically accurate. But Paul found it very, well, he found it a nuisance. He found it Annoying that as he and the others are about ministry, this slave girl is shouting at the top of their lungs, these men are the servants of the Most High God, telling you the way to be saved. Now, this reminds me of a lot of people that I've met in our neighborhood. 
where it's difficult to ascertain what exactly is going on with you right now. Whether it's sitting on my front porch with Marcia and we have people come up unannounced who ask if they can talk to us, to the community garden just up 17th Street where sometimes while mowing, sometimes while tending my own garden plot, there are opportunities, there are occasions to have conversations, to being at the church building over at 13th and F Street and uh, hearing the doorbell ring and coming down, not knowing for sure who or what you might find. I'll never forget the first time I walked up the steps toward our office and found a person asleep there on our porch. I've become acquainted with, even accustomed to, uh, people blurting out strange things, sometimes incredibly accurate, theologically true things at strange times, like during a worship service, or sometimes walking down the sidewalk. It's just, uh, you know, it wasn't until I moved into our neighborhood eight years ago that, that passages like these began to finally come to life in a way that I could appreciate. Clearly, in the case of this girl, this slave girl, she was under the influence of an evil spirit. We see Paul perform an exorcism. But you know, there was a whole lot more going on with this girl than the fact that she was being oppressed by the devil. I mean, it's apparent she was also being trafficked by her owners for financial gain. And research of the text has yielded this insight as well, that people who were engaged in this kind of activity, this probably doesn't surprise anyone, in order to do this sort of thing long term, it would be necessary to do it under the influence of some mind-altering substance. I find myself reading a passage like this and thinking how tragic How frightening sometimes it is to encounter folks who are in the throes of substance abuse, who have a difficult time expressing themselves in a way that is coherent, who are enslaved to prostitution, who are spiritually oppressed in any way one of these or any combination of these conditions. I could tell you because I've, I've done this, it's tempting to just want to look away, to avoid contact. But like Paul, our task is to speak and to live out the gospel in such a way so that freedom is proclaimed to the captive. And that those in the darkness can find their way into the light. That's the first person. The second person we meet is the jailer. Who has been entrusted 
with the responsibility of keeping Paul and Silas locked up securely after they have been severely beaten as troublemakers. Now, I don't know what part, if any, this individual had in their punishment leading up to their incarceration, but we know that um, prisons are not pleasant places, and it was particularly that way in the first century. And it doesn't tell us really anything at all in the text about what this man was like beforehand. But in one of the most dramatic conversion stories in the book of Acts, I mean, imagine, let's just imagine a little bit what it would have been like. That day when this man woke up, he was a pagan. He was entrusted to care, to be responsible for folks who had gotten in trouble with the law. That was the world, that was the life that this man woke up to. But get this, by sunrise the next day, this man and his entire family had come face to face with the gospel, believed in Jesus, had been baptized into him, and had brought these folks into his own home for a meal. But before all that took place, I want to take you back to the confusion of the midnight earthquake. I think we can understand the despair that this man would have felt in the chaos of the moment when he realizes that everyone has been set free, that he had been entrusted with responsibility for these individuals, he would have deducted correctly that his life was over because they surely would have run away. We can understand his fear and despair, his sorrow, that almost led him to the point of taking his life if Paul had not intervened to announce that everybody was present and accounted for. Is it any wonder that he fell before these strangers? He knew the charges that had been labeled against these men. They were telling people how to be saved. And now he finds himself at their feet begging to know, how can I be saved? And hearing the gospel, this man and his whole family, as we said, came to believe in Jesus. What an incredible story. May we never forget as a church that it is such stories that gladden the heart of God. And that Jesus desires to write this kind of story all over the world and right here in our neighborhood. Besides the slave girl and the jailer, there's a third person I want you to focus your attention upon for just a moment. And that person is the Apostle Paul himself. 
When we read about his release from prison the following day, I don't know about you, I never really paid a whole lot of attention to that. It was kind of like, whoo, the Philippian jailer comes to know Jesus, they have a party, and we move on. And, uh, but Luke is careful to record for us what happened next. And when we read about his release from prison the following day, it's tempting to think, He was motivated by anger. And who could blame him? After all, he and Silas had been treated terribly. They had been treated unjustly. But as we read these words, I hope we also see a couple of things that were important to Paul before he left town. That ought to be important to us before we wrap up today. For one thing... Paul seems to be intent upon making it clear in the public arena they have been accused and punished publicly and he is seeking a public kind of vindication. Paul wanted them to know, he wanted the city of Philippi to know that they, as ministers of the gospel, had done nothing wrong. Not suggesting that they were making some kind of like holier than thou, we are without sin kind of pronouncement. Not at all. We all know that we're sinners saved by grace. But rather, that in their proclamation of the gospel, they had done nothing that warranted this kind of treatment. But you know, I don't think he was concerned so much about his reputation. Now, I know, I know when I have been accused and, and on those rare occasions falsely accused, I know when I get fired up, it's more about me than it is about the kingdom. But I what I know about Paul, though, um, like, for example, later he would write the letter to the church at Philippi, where in chapter 2 he says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know, the king of the universe left his throne And he came into this world as a humble servant. This is our vocation as well. I think he was trying to set the stage. You know, what we're talking about is this apostolic mission team is going on to another city. The church, this infant church had been established. They were just getting going. And so for the sake of the continued proclamation of the gospel, he does what he can before he leaves to give them a good reputation. The gospel, a good reputation. Does the way we live our lives, I can't help but ask this question of us, does our, the way we conduct ourselves leave people with the impression that the gospel has a good reputation. And then he checks in with with Lydia. And he encourages the fellow believers to remain true to the Lord, to one another. And my prayer today is that all of us here in this room would have a similar commitment to Jesus and to one another as co-laborers in Christ.
And then this final thought. To paraphrase Dorothy Gale. I know, Grace Chapel, you already know this. But maybe today is a good day for us all to be reminded. Grace Chapel, you aren't at 40th and Sheridan anymore. Your church is changing. I don't, I don't know for sure how long you all have been in this location. But your church is going to change. By the way, churches are changing all the time. Sometimes not in a good way. I'm not talking about like a doctrinal drift away from Jesus and the scriptures, but, but you can't help but be in a place and become a part of that place. I want you to know that that's what your brothers and sisters at Fort, at Fort Street, F Street, yeah, I'm getting to, so I've been at enough churches that I get them confused. I'm surprised I haven't called you Capital City at least once or twice today, but your friends at F Street are praying that for you. And we are grateful to God that God has seen fit to plant you in our neighborhood. We are continually reminding ourselves at F Street that we don't just want to be a congregation that's located, that our building, our meeting place is located in the neighborhood. We truly want to be, we are striving to be in the strength of the Lord to be a church for the neighborhood and increasingly of the neighborhood. And I'm just telling you, I used to live in the suburbs too that it's a different world down here. A world that is in desperate need of the gospel. A world that is in desperate need of Christ-loving, gospel-centered, biblically-based, filled with love and compassion kind of churches, which I know Grace Chapel is and will continue to be. And so this is just my way of saying, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Don't let the sudden words that you hear blurted out or the occasional distractions that come in other ways in this neighborhood, including the fear or the doubt the uncertainty about, I've never encountered anything like this before. How in the world can Jesus use me? Brothers and sisters, we're all in good company. Because those who faithfully served before us knew exactly the same thing. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. What a privilege it is to be here in this place today. And to share with these brothers and sisters briefly about your wonderful gospel and this strategic place in time and geography for us to be ministers of the gospel. We find ourselves in a place and in a time when a lot of the people who live around our buildings are uh, 
they're largely forgotten about, overlooked. But I'm grateful that in your wisdom and in your purpose, you ordained from the foundation of the universe that we would be here in this moment, that we would be given the opportunity to preach the glorious good news to those who are oppressed, to those who are in bondage, to those who are blind, to those who in so many ways have been overlooked and forgotten in the eyes of the world. But in your grace, they have captured your attention. And in their lives, may we see trophies of your divine work, of your awesome grace, triumphing over everything that would defeat them and would defeat us. We praise you, Jesus, for giving us an opportunity to be your helpers in this wonderful work. In Jesus' name, amen.